welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deeper Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today on the podcast, I'm delighted to say my guest is writer-director Greg Araki. Greg, you may know he's the writer-director of The Doom Generation, Mysterious Skin, Nowhere, Kaboom, The Living End, Totally Fucked Up, Indie Pioneer, Queer Cinema Pioneer, and I was so stoked to speak to him. I've loved this guy since I was a teenager. His movies look and feel like nobody else's, really. And we are here to discuss the new restoration of a Doom Generation. It's been restored. It's been remixed. The music is harder and louder than ever before. And this is Greg's final cut. As you'll hear in our conversation, there's some crazy fucking edits of his movie. And sadly, one of them was done by Blockbuster. Blockbuster cut the shit out of this movie. Which is... This this is hard to process. But I'm getting through it. Anyway, here is me and Greg Araki. I'm good. How's things with you? I'm good. Just doing a bunch of interviews today. <laughs> oh, cool. So you're ready to get nostalgic and go back however many back, years. Back to the 90s. Yeah. Good times. Better times for in a lot of ways. Uh, Yeah, I think so. <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> yeah. So what kind of teenager were you? What were you listening to and watching and reading? What kind of teenager was I? Well, I was actually, um, yeah, I mean, I had a, I didn't have a super, you know, difficult teenage years. I grew up in Santa Barbara in in Southern California. So um, my teenage years were quite, uh, you know, very suburban. And, you know, um, I was uh, really into music. So it was, you know, and I happened to sort of come of age right at the right time in terms of, the sort of you know post-punk new wave kind of explosion and that music and that culture really um you know was a profound profound influence on me in terms of um my own sort of sort of artistic future you know mm-hmm. it's very uh, is this show in the uk or is this yeah we're based in the uk Okay. Yeah. Well, so I'll I'll hail the UK then because it was, you know, it was, I was in high school when the, when the Sex Pistols came out and, um, you know, that sort of explosion of new wave and alternative music, you know, in the late seventies, early eighties was right as I was, you know, graduating high school, starting college, um, started to study film and you know i i was kind of an artsy kid and um 
really into like drawing and painting and you know, comic books and all that stuff. So, um, you know, the music really spoke to me and that culture really spoke to me. And it was such a profound, profound influence on me in terms of this sort of, you know, DIY ethos of it. And, and uh, you know, the idea of just sort of marching to your own drummer, that was something that, you know, in my formative years was, a you know, a big, big part of my life. And what type of movies were having an effect on you? The same thing. I mean, it was just like, you know, it was just, you know, don't want to be too nostalgic. Here, yeah. <laughs> but, but it was a time of like, um, you know, this sort of late 70s, early 80s. I remember seeing like Days of Heaven in the theater. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And The Deer Hunter in the theater. Like these, these movies, there was a, it was a time when, you know, Hollywood, you know, it wasn't just a bunch of comic book movies. It wasn't just a bunch of Marvel movies. It was. No, the director was king. Over Ottawa's king. Yeah, they, you know, it was like Scorsese sort of at his like peak, uh, Coppola at his, yeah, like all these, all these directors, like it was just an exciting time in terms of art, culture, music, film, cinema. Yeah, I mean, and so it was a great time to come of age, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, um, I had friends that, you know, were in like the kind of creative studies college and we used to go to like art openings and, wear crazy outfits and yeah it was just a it was a cool time and so i i feel very fortunate and as far as the timing of my um you know just timing of my life when when things you know were happening in the culture was right when i was sort of at my most um you know i was at my most sort of open and most sort of absorbing all of yes influences i feel the same way coming up in the 90s with your movies, Link Later, Jarmusch, How Hartley, and yeah. I remember seeing a Yoli Tango video and how Hartley made the video. And I was like, oh my God, all my favorite directors are probably into the same type of music I'm in, into as well. And you'd see cool cameos from like Joe Strummer and stuff in Jarmusch movies and the whole music and movies universe was just like all one thing. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm actually doing a screening um, of Doom Generation in New York, and they asked me to screen a film before that was a bit of an inspiration or, you know, a film that is a sort of personal favorite. And I picked um, I picked something wild for the, sa- for the same reason, like, um, because Jonathan Demme, that film is like a little bit earlier, it's 1986, but um, Demme somebody to that um was the same thing, like very into the music I was mm-hmm. into. He directed that famous uh, New Order video for The Perfect Kiss, and he directed Stop Making Sense with Talking Heads, and like he was into all that music that I was into. And also, he was he didn't go to real he didn't go to real film school. He you know came up through the Corman School yeah. of Film, but he had a very film school aesthetic and a film school mm-hmm. taste it was very influenced you could tell by you know howard hawks and hitchcock and all the sort of classic you know american auteurs and and um i picked something wild because it is you know very much modeled after bringing a baby the howard hawks movie from the mm-hmm. 30s which is one of my favorite movies and which is an influence on doom generation as well as not to mention The Living End, which is both of which sort of steal the sort of 
structure of that movie. So, um, yeah, it was just a time where there was a lot of like kind of cross breeding of all of this, you know, sort of very exciting and influential stuff. That's weird you mentioned that Jonathan Demi video. I hadn't seen that until I spoke to my pals in Boy show. And they were saying oh, that's that, so funny. Like Boy Harsher, well, maybe it's maybe the 2020s are the the same. Boy Harsher actually came to the Doom Generation screening in um in Sundance when we just um Cool. Had, Those guys uh, are so great. Yeah, me and Jimmy and Jonathan or um and Andreas Sperling, the producer, we were all at Sundance and Boy Harsher came out. They're friends with Jimmy. They, Jimmy was actually in one of the their videos. Yeah. Yeah. And um yeah, I mean they're the you know so they're maybe it's all going to happen again in the tw- in the twenty twenties where there's this sort of confluence of film and music and yeah and because they were actually at Sundance with a movie they directed like they yeah had Jay had just it was a screenplay she wrote a few years ago that I think just got greenlit and yeah it was it was premiering there I think they they went actually to film school I think. Yeah, they're big film nerds as well as yeah. So they're you know they're big Doom Generation fans, and it was real fun to see them. And you know their their music videos are are so um, um, you can tell they're film school people. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like when I was an undergraduate, um, you know, I just we used to go to shows all the time. Like they used to have um, at our campus in, at UC Santa Barbara. They would just have everybody would come through there, talking heads, B fifty twos, like you know, like every like all that sort of, you know, like X came there several yeah. times. I was a huge, huge X fan. That's actually the name of my company is Death for Pictures, and it's named after the X song. So it was just all you know. It just I remember Bow Wow Bow came, Pretender, like every like everybody came came to our school, and um, I used to go to L A and see shows all the time, and. Um, yeah, it was just an awesome time to be young and, and be, you know, be alive. Yeah. How how are you now going to shows? I, I'm I'm going to, as I get older, I go to less and less. I was so, it's Sigarosa <laughs> playing and I was like, oh my God, beautiful. It's seated. It's in a nice auditorium. I can sit down for a few hours. I'm like, buy ticket now. I get so. You're like, yeah, I know. It's like, no, I, I still love going to shows and. Um, and, uh, it's a funny, uh, the mentioned senior rose. I've seen them several times. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw them on like, their, I think it was their very, very first U.S. appearance at Coachella. They were in the tent in the end of their- <laughs> they were, and they were fantastic. But, um, but yeah, it's just like they're, it, they're, they're still, uh, you know, great music being made today. So it's, you know, it's still, it's still there for, young people to to discover i think i was at the rice boy sleeps album launch because my friends are friends with their management team Uh and they still won't let me live it down that it was at a bakery the album launch was at a bakery and for the whole night they were just serving free icelandic schnapps (laughs) and all these delicious little pastries and I got so, so drunk on the free bar that <laughs> I lost all my stuff in Soho House later that night. And I was talking to the staff, like, I can't find my camera. I can't find my keys. I'm friends with the Cigar Ross guys. 
and they said maybe we should check outside and i was like yeah sure and they closed the door and just locked it and i had to it was so bad i had to go back to my parents house and ring the doorbell at 3 a.m and like i'm not dead i just lost my keys i was at this icelandic post-rock event and it all got well, out luckily you, luckily you you survived the night <laughs> it, it sucks that they locked you it was but of the weirdest like my parents like what happened good good warning to, to about Icelandic schnapps. <laughs> they probably do a lot of drinking in Iceland, I think. Yes. Yeah, I definitely think so. They're very isolated up there. So. I'm so excited for the restoration. I bought, I remember buying the DVD and then finding out there was the uncut, unrated DVD. And then I think you had a different one for cable. How many cuts have there been of your... There have officially been three versions of the Doom Generation. The first version, which is this version that we just restored, was screened really only one time at Sundance, at the at the world premiere of Sundance in 1995. Uh, and um, from there we got picked up by a U.S. distributor and so I made a few cuts particularly the last reel the sort of climactic like sort of like violent scene or we won't say what happens for people who sure. haven't seen the movie but it's an intense uh, it's in the last reel is quite intense and um, the distributors had me tone it down a little like trim it a bit and tone it down a little bit so i did that and then um so there's that version which is like just it's not a huge amount of stuff but it is it is it is toned down and then from there they created um against my will because i literally did not want this version to ever see the ever come out they without my um, supervision they just took it and hacked it up um, they cut an r-rated version from blockbuster video which back in the day every movie you know they had to make money by selling it at blockbuster or whatever and the blockbuster version is literally like butchered it's missing like 20 minutes or something Jesus. it doesn't it doesn't even make sense and i like i told them i wanted to put it on the box like this version is shit <laughs> watch it. like this was made without my without my approval and um and so yeah yeah we'll do that and of course they never yeah so it, that version floats around out there and it's like horrifying to me that it even exists so those are the three versions and i'm that's why i'm so excited about the remastering because i personally you know hope those other two versions go away forever and plus the in the u.s i don't know about the uk but in the u.s the um the um video version is a pan and scan it's not even 185 so um the new version is you know the proper aspect ratio and it's a really really beautifully shot movie i was so um hadn't seen it for you know years and then when we were remastering it i was sort of stunned at how beautiful it is like the cinematographer jim feely did such a good job such a the lighting and 
and the you know the actors are just at the peak of their beauty like all three of them absolutely yeah it's just such a beautiful movie it's so beautifully lit and um our production designer the late great therese de prez did such a jim and jim and therese both did such a fantastic job on such a tight budget and such a tight schedule um so um I'm so pleased about the new version that it, it's just gorgeous. It's just, especially if you can see it on a big screen, we just, when we saw it at Sundance, it's amazing. And um, so, yeah, I'm very, I'm very happy about that. And it's also been remixed too. And, you know, some of the dialogue was kind of like, like <laughs> we actually ADR'd a few lines that, that I could not make out. And um, we re especially we remixed the soundtrack that mm-hmm. has, amazing soundtrack of bands that i can't believe that we even got them in such a small movie but um it's such a great time capsule of amazing music from that period and so one of the things i did in the remix was um i kind of recut the music a little bit and we remixed it so that you can hear it and the music is um rocking so it's it, it rocks way more than it way more than it used to obviously i've grown up watching all your movies and it was kind of crazy rewatching it knowing that you said doom generation was your first time working with a a real crew and a dop and a production designer and all those essential figures but watching it again i was so amazed that your your vision is so confident and your production design your style all your needle drops i was wondering how how did you feel stepping into a you know, an Aquas real set with a whole team behind you and stuff. And it was really funny because it was very, um, it was um, a big step for me. And I, I remember it was a real adjustment because I, the, um, my films before that living in and totally fucked up both were just super small, like 16 millimeter, the name are like 20 grand or whatever. And I was um, basically the cameraman and, you know, the, the producers, Marcus and John were <laughs> no, I'm living it. They're basically like PAs and they just, you know, brought the lunch. And <laughs> so it was just like, it was, you know, the, the crew on those movies was so tiny. It was literally sometimes just one person, just me with a camera. Sometimes it was maybe five people like sound person and a couple of PAs or whatever, but it was not like a, a full-on production and doom generation was my first movie that had a full-on as you said production designer dp and our director photography and crew and assistant directors and and i remember it being a, a bit of a learning curve for me because um i just found the bureaucracy of it frustrating you know it's just like so many people mm-hmm. and walkie talkies and um but i i had a super clear idea and clear vision of because i you know it was actually my fifth movie so um because even though i've been working at a different scale i knew cinematically what i wanted so it was very specific and very um you know it it was you know a, a larger crew but still the same process basically of um sort of bringing this movie that's in my head you know like getting it onto celluloid so um the process of that aspect of it was not was not that different but it was a cool time in the sense that you know again because of the way i grew up and 
alternative music and all of my sort of, you know, musical heroes, you know, it was very like, you know, we were just like totally, I guess just the confidence and the stupidity of youth, just very like, um, just do whatever we like. It was very just, um, kind of no holds barred. You know, it's just like, like going to those places of, um, sort of yeah. crazy ideas like okay let's make this motel room all red let's make this other motel room like black and white checks let's you know let's push the sort of sexuality of of the the threesome like kind of to the limit and um it was really just you know there there wasn't a a, a worry about like oh well we don't want to turn off that you know part of the audience or this demographic or that you know it was just very like you know in those days of um you know sort of early 90s indie filmmaking it was just like a whole new frontier and it was very exciting and it's just very cool creative place uh, to work in and looking back this film is so dark and nihilistic I mean, obviously, it's called the Doom Generation as part of a Teen Apocalypse trilogy, so it kind of does what it says in the ten. But I was wondering, where was your head at at that time? I know you said afterwards, I I wouldn't make. Now I'm at a different point in my life, and I don't want to make something as dark. Uh Which, funnily, Trent Reznor also said about Downward Spiral that he says, "I'm never going back to never going something as fucking (laughs) dark and as violent and hellish as that." So that's funny because. Um, the, the Trent Reznor song in heresy. Yeah. Heresy is from downward spiral. Yeah. It starts off with just God is dead. And I was like, okay, this sets the tone. Yeah. God. Dead. Oh my God. Yeah. Then just to get on a tangent for a bit, like I saw, um, Nine Inch Nails at FYF festival about, I guess it was five years ago. Um, it was the same show that like Frank Ocean was there and Solange and Bjork. It was just and Slow Dive, my heroes. Um, they're actually the ones that got me on the list for that show. And 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 uh Nigel's played so much of that album. It was fucking like I was like out of my mind because it totally took me back. Like they played that song Reptile that I love yeah. so much. And um it just was it like literally it was i was like a i was like a kid again <laughs> it was like it took me back to i saw not to not to brag but i saw nine Inch nails when they were like first i think it was one of their first la shows i saw them at um helter skelter which is a, a kind of goth industrial club and they played a room that was literally like a garage i mean it was like probably 50 people fit into it but um yeah i remember that that very first um that those early early nine nail shows but anyway yeah back to yeah yeah the in terms of the um in terms of the sort of darkness of doom generation that's one of the coolest things to me about like all of my films in the sense that my films come from a very sort of personal place and they're mm-hmm. very um they're almost like diaries or journals for me like i literally will just kind of spew out all this like i keep notebooks of like little ideas and little thoughts and it was and so um the movies 
you know, all, especially those nineties movies, but you know, even today, it's like, they're all very much where I was at and, and doom generation is absolutely where I was at in the early nineties, where my head was at, how I was feeling about the world, how I was feeling about just life in general. And they're, they're all very much a snapshot of my head, you know, thankfully, I guess like Trent Reznor, you know, we, we sort of, evolve and grow and change and soften up yeah <laughs> and our priorities change and our world changes and our worldview you know um you know we sort of like hopefully get a little more mature but um that it's it it was very much a you know that period of my life that, that uh that's where that really comes from This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a creative streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema. Iconic directors, emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover. All the Mubi films are handpicked. I've been a Mubi subscriber for years and I want to dig in and give you guys three of my favorite picks from the Mubi UK catalog. This is always fun. Let me dig in. Okay. Greg Araki is on the pod, so we've got to go for Mysterious Skin from 2004. Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Brady Corbett as two young lost teenagers. Brady's obsessed with UFOs and feels he's been abducted. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is a young hustler and their lives interconnect in a very dark and kind of beautiful way and it has one of the most haunting and beautiful endings in any movie i've ever seen let's go nymphomaniac volumes one and two okay so melancholia will always be my favorite Lars movie this i think is a close second this is just like everything brilliant Lars does in one movie Stunning cinematography, salacious, provocative, shocking, beautiful, tender, tragic, disgusting, violent, ugly. It's everything. And I don't think I don't think it got the respect it deserved at the time. Obviously, coming out of a movie called Nymphomaniac, people are gonna be up in arms, but I think this is just such a great great achievement in cinema nymphomaniac parts one and two but only counts as one pick so one more okay the final one wobble palace made by my friend eugene kotlarenko from 2018 eugene has a season on movie called love me click me three of his films are there i love to see it it's always so nice when you see your talented friends going places and getting on movie and things like that so like a lot of eugene's movies this is a kind of a strange romantic comedy it's about a couple on the verge of breaking up during the 2016 elections and 
Eugene, like nobody else, does the kind of hells of the modern romance, texting, dating apps, things like that. He's just fantastic. And yeah, start with this one. Okay, that's it. And you can watch all these movies for free. Just go to movie.com slash deeper into movies for a whole month of great cinema for free. Movie.com slash deeper into movies. Watch the free I recommended and discover another ton of great, great movies. Aside from the podcast, our bigger thing is we're film programmers and show movies around London. And I was talking to a bunch of young cinephiles yesterday about, we mentioned a movie and I was like, oh, that movie was so fucked up. I can't watch that again. And they're like, tell me it. What else should I watch? I need more fucked up shit. And I just realized that the older I get, the the less I can stomach when I, <laughs> as, as I get watching, you know, like when you're like, in your teens and twenties and you're watching I Spit on Your Grave and you're watching Piano Teacher and Funny Games and Irreversible and stuff. And just the older <laughs> I get, the more I'm leaning toward, I just want a Peter Bogdanovich movie or a few episodes of Seinfeld and stuff. My, I definitely paid my dues. Paid your dues and seen it all. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about Doom Generation. It's always, um, you know, it came out right around the same time as kids and we are frequently sort of lumped together. And I do, I do think of Doom Generation as it has, it's certainly dark and, you know, it has a, you know, uh, sort of a, a, a pessimistic view, I guess. But at the same time, I've always thought of um, the movie as being very kind of romantic and the romantic aspect of um, Doom Generation. I mean, I, I feel like, kids was like truly in like a nihilistic movie it was just like everything's just so fucked <laughs> whereas um all my movies but particularly i mean living into and um and totally fucked up and and doom generation and it comes out more i think in nowhere um but there is a level of um sort of romanticism of it it's it's sort of built into that genre of like the sort of cu- the outlaw couple on the run yeah but like you know the living end and buying clyde they live by nine like all of those movies and something wild that there's this um search for sort of love and utopia in this sort of chaotic world and i always used to describe doom generation as um sort of like a jesus and mary chain song because that's how their music is too there's there's the there the 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 content of uh, Jesus and Mary Jane's song tends to be quite romantic and tends to be quite sort of wistful and melancholy. And it's just the surface of it is so it's just kind of this noise and chaos, you know? And I think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, I loved them so much for so long is that there's, it's, it's not just like nihilistic noise. You no, know they I mean? said it's like pretty much Phil Spector songs and Ronette songs, but put yeah. for no, I remember fast I, pedals and distortion. Yeah. I interviewed Jesus Mary Chain um, back in the late 80s when I, 
um, was a music critic at the LA Weekly, and they were talking about um, like Sandy Shaw. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Talking about pop songs and and how in America, um, you know, music tends to be classified as you know jazz, you know, R and B, alternative, you know, and rock and roll. Yeah, you know, it's like, and then he and he there and Jim was talking about in um, England, it, it's just more of a hodgepodge, you know, and, yeah. and so you you can listen to you know Sandy Shaw and and you know you know just whatever Bauhaus or, you know, I mean it's yeah. all it's all kind of in the same it's all thought of as music so it, I I find that kind of approach like so much more interesting I've always wondered when I was going back for your movies for the last few days what do all the shoegaze bands what do they make of you when they first saw your their songs needle drop to Doom Generation I very clearly remember um, we had to screen the movie for Trent and yeah. for Perry Farrell. And they both literally came to a private screening in this like small screening room in Hollywood. Um, we screen had to screen a rough cut before they would approve the use. And um, yeah, so they were they were both there. But it was, you know, I think they, you know, again, it's like the time it was the time, you know, it was the times, you know, it's like they appreciate yeah. that. You know that I was doing in film kind of what they do in music. You know, what I mean, just yeah. like doing my own thing and and not really being like, oh, this is like a big, you know, top forty mainstream thing. This is like something kind of artsy and 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 iconoclastic and subversive and you know. And so I think they they both kind of uh, you know appreciated it. What about all the soft shoegaze guys like? slow dive or ride or people like that did were they slow like dive or like like friends of mine and um personal heroes um yeah again it's just like they were you know in america it's it's weird slow dive is such a weird band to me because you know they're one of my all-time favorite bands i love them so much and their music is so inspiring to me but in the UK, they were apparently so critically reviled. <laughs> That's why they eventually broke up. And um, That's crazy. Considering yeah, the, how revered they are now. But it, why would, I, I always say, say the same with, not to sound like a grumpy old man, but I remember before Lost in Translation, I was, I was going to William Reed solo gigs at this dive bar in Soho where he was playing to 40 people on an acoustic guitar and it was Uh incredible. But I was like, fuck man, this guy deserves better than this. And then lost in translation happened and they blew up again. And everyone was like, we love Jesus and Mary chain. And I was like, there was a big period where, you know, after their last record that they were kind of on the ash heap of. Really? Yeah. Because again, it's different in America. Um, because you know all those bands tend to not be super popular. You yeah. know, I mean, only Nine Inch Nails, you know, has really broken through. Like Nine Inch Nails and Nirvana are kind of the only ones that, like, well, I guess there's other ones too, but they were the, you know, they suddenly are like selling millions of records, playing giant, yeah. giant arenas and stuff. And um, but for the most part, a lot like Juice and Mary Chain, Slow Dive. The other one, Cocteau Twins, that's like, course, like yeah. all the bands that are like huge, huge, huge bands to me. Um, you know, they never, they never sold millions of records. They never had 
super commercial success. But that's to me, I always say that's very much my approach to movies. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Movies don't win Oscars. They don't, you know, make a hundred million dollars at the box office, but they are meaningful to the people that get them. You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely, yeah. And that's what that's all that matters to me. Like it's like when they, like kids will come up to me or older people will come up to me and like, you know, Doom Generation saved my life. It's like one of my favorite all-time movies. And it means so much to me. And that's how, you know, and it that's all I care about. I mean, that's the reason why I make movies. And so that's how I feel about Slow Dog, Cocteau Twins, like all those bands that, you know, maybe were never hugely commercial success, could commercially successful, but the music means so much to me. It's so inspiring to me. And it's, you know, I listen, you know, I could, I've been listening to it for uh, whatever, <laughs> 30 years. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, and, you know, I'm surprised you say that about Mary Chain because Mary Chain to me is like. I know. I think it's, yeah, it's sacrilege. But I think, well, kind of like when they say you've got to go out of fashion to come back into fashion. Well, you know, it's like one thing, too, is that, you know, we didn't have like enemy and all that, that yeah. culture of, of alternative music press, which, you know, that's kind of what did slow dive in is that they, um, you know, they were in fashion and then they were out of fashion. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Like all of a sudden we love slow dive. It's like, Oh, we hate slow dive. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're over. Yeah. It's, and so we don't have that here. So it's like when the slow dive records came out, it's just like, Oh my God, what is this music? And we, you know, it's, and so, you know, and I think it's, it's, you know, telling that, um, you know, the music lives on, you know, slow dive, bloody Valentine, all that stuff. It's just like, to this day so influential like so beloved over here and you know again not top 40 and a lot of people don't know who they are but the people who do know who they are they're legendary you know so yeah i wanted to touch on you said that all the movies were almost a portrait of where you were at the time uh-huh. so i was wondering where does this sense of doom and apocalypse come from in your movies and also <laughs> You've got the rapture in nowhere. James Duval believes he's going to die very soon. Everything's off. There's a dark energy brooding and strange encounters. I was wondering where all this comes from. A lot of it came from just, you know, being young. (laughs) There's that feeling of, I mean, that's why a lot of my uh, movies and a lot of the stuff I do are about that age of being young and being confused and feeling alienated and not sure who you are because when you're young your life is a, you know just everything's question mark you know it's just every, you don't know what's going to happen everything's so uncertain it's such a kind of confusing but at the same time such an exciting and kind of exhilarating time you just don't can't see the forest for the trees yet and you know the older you get i mean i'm in my 60s now and you know the older you get the more comfortable you get the more secure you get the more you know you just become you know the person that you're meant to be but you Mm -hmm. know when you're struggling in your teens or 20s or 30s and you're just trying to find yourself and trying to find your place in the world it's a it's you know there it, there's a, a darkness to it, but there at the same time, there's a, a you know a real lightness and a real vitality there and a real kind of life being lived that 
at the time you just don't have the perspective on it yet, but you gain it with age. <laughs> so I think that that's where a lot of that comes from because it's just very much just how you feel in the world. You know? And uh, aliens is a recurring theme in your movies and abduction. Where, where, where does that come from? Not to psychoanalyze you, but I'm curious. A lot of my movies are set in Los Angeles or yeah. you know, I'm based in Los Angeles. And what I've always loved about living here. And, you know, I remember somebody in film school said this to me once is that um, like living in LA is like living inside a giant cartoon. And that's kind of what it's, it's very, you just, it's just the, it's the land of dreams and it's the land of nightmares and you just see weird shit all the time. And so that's one of the things like in nowhere when, when Jimmy's character sees the alien just crossing the street. You know what I mean? Yes. Because it's like, that's kind of how, you know, it's just a surreal, like it's a surreal place to live. And it's like, unlike any other place I've ever been. Um, there's just a level of like fantasy colliding with reality. And it's just like weird shit happening all the time which really fuels me and kind of fuels my movies and fuels um my imagination i think and when i was re-watching nowhere such a well it's one of my favorite opening title sequences with uh, the yeah. with the yeah we're actually we're remastering nowhere next. oh thank god amazing it's never been properly released. It's never been on video in America. It's like it never been, ne- was never released on DVD here, only on VHS. Really? What the fuck? Yeah, and it, and it has a huge cult following. And every time I appear anywhere in public, people say, where's nowhere? I, I need to get nowhere. No, 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 no. And so we finally uh, got the rights back and we're remastering that next. So I'm super excited about that. So soon the whole Teen Apocalypse trilogy will be available. Finally. For, for for the next generation. And what was so wild is when I was watching your, well, I loved the way all the titles are sliding across the screen, but what a cast. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. You've you literally got the who's who of teen yeah. stars at the time. How was it putting all those people together into your... Nowhere was such a kind of, I mean, you know, Doom and Nowhere, we're both really um, just kind of magical time for me it was just very um you know nowhere was shot in the summer and it was just like a super fun shoot and all the you know all the actors were just like so cool to work with and um you know doom generation uh, you know looking back on it it was a i love you know i it's such a i look back on it with such fondness and it was such a um, amazing experience and you know to this day um you know, it holds such a special place in my heart, but um, the shooting of it was difficult. It was winter. It was cold. It all was, nights, right? Yeah. All it was. Yeah. And for anybody who's in production, people when need shooting nights. It just turns you into like a, you're like a zombie. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was a different, and you know, the, the second day of the shoot was the Northridge earthquake. And, you Holy know, like we had our, our set was wrecked and, it was just like a lot. It was like people say that you should never call your movie something like the Doom Generation because it curses the movie. Right. <laughs> so the shoot was very um, 
it was a it was a hard shoot but you know again i look back on it with such fondness and it was such an amazing time and the actors are also amazing and you know i, I you know now i can look back on it and laugh but at the time it was it was it was it was not easy i, I remember when i was watching nowhere i was like this is almost like euphoria 20 years before do you get that a lot i i always think like euphoria and rules of attraction both are slapped on and need more respect when i look at yeah I, mean, I do feel like um i do feel like um you know youth culture is kind of caught up a little bit with yeah with nowhere i mean nowhere was very much um kind of a vision in my head it didn't really exist at that point you know and i think i remember the first time i ever went to coachella i mean that's why i love coachella so much and that's why i've been there so many times is that it reminded me of nowhere like it was yeah. very, <laughs> like a this sort of utopian place of like these beautiful kids and they were all kind of you know omnisexual yeah <laughs> and you know there was that like music playing and you know it was like bands like jesus and mary chain <laughs> you know like it was the bands that you know is alternative music like paradise and that reminded me like very much of nowhere kind of sort of come to life um and so yeah i mean i do think that you know that the um you know the sort of Gen Y, Gen Z, um, had certainly ca caught up a little bit to where the movie is. Um, I read this article the other day talking about how some like insane, not like twenty five percent of Gen Z or something identifies as LGBT. Yeah, UI. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so there's just a level of fluidity now and a level of openness that didn't existed in the 90s but didn't exist to the extent that it exists today and mysterious skin was a huge jump in tone for you uh -huh. how, how how was that i remember i found this this is this is when i met you in oh wow 2004 at the mysterious london film festival early 2000s and i was i, I missed the era when i'd go was to the that, film was that at the premiere yeah yeah. yeah. Did you see that Robin Guthrie and Kevin Shields were both there? They were in front of me. It was great. And yeah, I. It's le legendary. Like, the, so both... cool. Cause, 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 yeah, I, I love both those guys. And I was like, wow, icons in front of me. It was kind of distracting. Icon at the mysterious skin screening. Yeah. But that was like such a great time when festivals had so much budget and they'd fly. I mean, Scott Heim was flown out. It was you. Corbett, Levitt. It was it was so great that all those indie movies, everyone they they'd have budgets just to bring everyone out for the Q and A's, and I'd meet everyone afterwards. I I met the budget of Mysterious Skin was not that much. It was actually not that much more than Doom Generation. It was a little bit more, but not, it was a very tight budgeted movie. So it was still. But I guess I mean with the distributors and the festival budgets and stuff, it was. Oh yeah, no, the, the, no yeah, we definitely had more. more money for the you know premiere and all that stuff but that yeah. was the that was the distributor more than anything yeah tartan i miss those guys they did great releases in the UK. yeah it's like the yeah the distributors that do like indie movies and stuff like that 
Mr. Skin is also like a very, you know, based on Scott Heim's book, of course. And, and again, like slow dive connection, like mysterious, he wrote Mysterious Skin. Um, he's a he, musically, he's exact, you know, we have that very much in common. Uh, Scott Nine, he wrote Mr. Skin listening to Slow Dot and listening to Cocktail Joints and listening to, to you know, uh, all of that sort of um, shoegazy, sort of dreamy, and that's uh, music. And that's why the vibe of, of Mr. Skin, like, so fit with my vibe. Like, mm-hmm. it's pretty cut from the same cloth, I think. Recently, you've done lots of TV. You've done Riverdale, Dharma, American Gigolo, 13 uh-huh. Reasons Why, which all kind of feel in your universe in one way or the other. But it was funny, I was talking to Ty West when he came out with X, and he was saying, everyone was like, oh my God, you're in TV. Are you in TV jail? Can you not make a movie? And he said, I'm having a blast. I do a few days work. I've got my budget. If it rains, I'm not having a fucking freak out looking at the schedule, uh-huh. working out what scenes I can get rid of my script because the budget won't allow. He was like, I go in there. I've got a great crew. I do great work, but I'm not killing myself every night looking over the pages and the schedule and yeah, all that type of stuff. He can just be in the best way a gun for hire and just do good work. Uh-huh. I was wondering, how, how's your experience been in TV? I, I agree 100%. I mean, it's different than a movie. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always going to be an indie filmmaker. I'm, you know, always working on my next thing. I mean, I did also do my show Apocalypse, which was, of course, to me, yeah. which was, you know, I directed 10 episodes of my own show. And that was like kind of my dream show it was my you know it was very much my own show and not somebody else's show yeah the thing i remember talking to rick linkletter about directing tv and it's like it's you know i agree with what ty's saying it's it's kind of it's like fun like it's literally like you're just making this little mini movie and you don't have any creative responsibility for it really because it's really on the showrunner and and whoever created the show so you're just there to make the best sort of mini movie you can with and and it's such a um small commitment your uh our show usually shoots about 10 days a half hour show shoots in like you know five to six days um when we did now apocalypse we were shooting we shot like um an episode every four days so it's this it's really a tight tight schedule and um it's you know it's a machine that sort of is just up and running and you just Mm -hmm. show up and do your thing so it's 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 cool in that way but one of the things i was really interested in doing tv is that um it was very uh educational for me in the sense that um i learned all about you know show running and and how tv is different than, than movies and um it was all lessons that um I applied when I did my own TV show. So it's like, there's certain ideas that fit, you know, in in the TV world and there's certain ones that fit, you know, in the more movie world. (laughs) So it's, it's cool to have the flexibility to go both, you know, do both. Just swing ways. (laughs) (laughs) And what do you want to do next? Have you got movies in the pipeline? Have you got any projects you can talk about? Yeah, I got I got some stuff uh, I'm working on. Nothing nothing is shot yet, but you know that's the life of a 
<laughs> indie filmmaker. But yeah, no, I have a couple. I have a TV thing I'm working on, and I have a movie thing I'm working on. So we'll see. We'll see which one's next. This has been such a pleasure. I've been so excited to speak to you after being a fan for all these years. Thank you so much for doing this, and you know, helping to get the word out. Oh, my pleasure. Keep up the great work, buddy. All right. Thanks. Take care. Thank you. Have a great day. That was me and Greg Araki. What a sweet guy. That was so incredible I got to speak to him. As you regular listeners know, when I get to speak to those guys from the 90s, from the indie Sundance era, it just gets me. Those are the guys I grew up watching all their movies and when I was deepest into cinema you know, watching like two or three films a day and regularly getting my mind blown by discovering a new visionary director, you know, like John Moosh, Hal Hartley, Greg. So yeah, these ones just hit different. Okay, that's it from me. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks to Joshua Eustace, aka Televon Tel Aviv, for my beautiful music. And we'll speak soon.